calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, I'm Dennis McLeavy with CFA Institute, and we're here with another in our series on Take 15, uh, a series on market and credit risk. Uh, welcome, Ken. I um, would like to welcome Ken Grant, who is president of Risk Resources. And uh, our topic today is uh, systemic risk in structured finance. Thank you very much, Dennis. I'm glad to be here. Ken, you actually did some of the early work in portfolio risk measurement. I'm wondering if you could discuss that a little bit. Sure, I, I'd be glad to. Uh, my first work in, in, in portfolio risk assessment was actually at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange at the late part of the earlies and early part of the 90s. And, of course, the exchange had just completed uh, – a fairly serious uh, round of risk assessment in, in the wake of the 1987 crash and was ta wanted to take a much more direct look at how it, it was assessing risk on the users of, of the exchange and realizing that it had to take into account the totality of portfolio exposures in making these risk assessments, which ultimately are uh, determined margin requirements and how much collateral users need to put up in order to uh, uh, to be eligible to, to trade uh, the products in question. So at the same time that banks like J.P. Morgan were doing this internally, the exchange decided to take a portfolio risk management approach to risk assessment, which would be to look at the total portfolios of the users in question to make a risk-based judgment about what kind of uh, price volatility in total could be uh, expected in in those portfolios, uh, taking into account the fact that certain instruments are correlated, the fact that you might be long one instrument related to a, a short position in another instrument, and just letting price volatility as it had been observed to make that determination. So that all of that led to something called the span margin system, which was created by some colleagues of mine at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And shortly thereafter, I came and participated in the project and was part of the globalization of, of, of the span margin system, which is still being used today uh, for the entire futures industry, at any rate, for portfolio risk assessment. Great. Well, we're interested today in the issue of the subprime fallout, and I'd like basically to follow this pattern of how did we get to where we are today? Well, sure. Well, first thing that I would say is that I can only give you my somewhat anecdotal, somewhat empirical judgment about what has taken place here, but we are, um, we certainly, I think, could arguably uh, call ourselves to be have gone past the point where a 15, 20-year housing bubble uh, ends and bubbles usually 
don't end particularly well, and we're, we're starting to understand that experience uh, in the housing market in the same way we had done in the technology market in the 90s and elsewhere through, throughout history. So it starts out uh, with, to borrow a phrase from Mr. Greenspan, some irrational exuberance in one asset class, and that asset class was real estate, which had been on a pretty unilateral upward drift since Ronald Reagan was elected with, with a few hitches here and there. And everybody's houses were being worth more money all the time. It, it seemed like a relatively safe investment. And uh, it, there looked like there was no end in sight, which all of which was fine until the early part of this decade, and again, this is in my judgment, when we went through the September 11th attacks and uh, the central bank, I think, quite wisely in the first instance, decided to inject liquidity into the economy. Um, in my particular judgment, they went too far, and it ended up being 17 rate cuts over a two-and-a-half, three-year period, which by the beginning of 2003, end of 2002, took real interest rates clearly into negative territory, which means there's a negative cost of borrowing. At this point, there is an enormous risk-based incentive to lend money and to borrow money. And at the same time, contemporaneously, uh, we, we saw the next generation of the syndication um, and distribution of these kinds of risks into a broader investment pool. So you've got people with true incentive to borrow at negative real interest rates at the same time that uh, banks and other financial institutions were creating increasingly complex types of instruments which could parse out different like pieces of risk and sell them all over the world. And what happened in my judgment, but certainly not in my own judgment because I didn't come up with this, There's, this, is, this is a well-discussed uh, theory about what's gone on, the risks, the visible risks kind of disappeared. Borrowers had very little risk because the markets went, uh, were, were going one way in the, in the equity markets. Uh, people who were lenders had very little risk because the money was free in terms of real interest rates. And secondly, they were packaging these things, creating enormous uh, fees in the process and distributing them all over the world in the form of structured investments, collateralized debt obligations, collateralized mortgage obligations, all of these things that you hear. So at some point, what ended up happening was that there was, in my opinion, a lending discipline that broke down because the incentives for discipline were not there. And on the one side, a lot of bad loans were made, and they ended up in the hands of investors who had an enormous amount of leverage available to them in order to book very, very, very nice returns on these investments in a steady state. But in a very highly levered kind of situation, it does not take much negative price dispersion to start to create very serious uh, losses. And remember, these losses are being generated on portfolios that are being funded with borrowed dollars. So you end up with a situation where the value of the investments are being dropped, the value of the margin collateral is, is, is being reduced, 
And uh, at the same time, the margin requirements are increasing because the lenders are getting more nervous, which, in my opinion, is not a particularly conducive environment to the orderly readjustment to some lower level of, of value for, say, American real estate, for instance. So the last thing that I would say about it, there's not really particularly a problem in a 10, 15, 20% correction, even across the whole U.S. housing market. But if it's all financed with borrowed money and the lenders and the borrowers start to get nervous, it can create a lot more havoc than what is um, apparent in, in the underlying economics of the situation. Now, as part of that story, how does the 2005 structured finance collapse fit in? Well, it's a very similar kind of situation because in the structured finance collapse of, of 2005, where I had some personal experience, had to do with a great deal of highly levered investment pools having been created, in this case, mostly out of corporate debt as opposed to out of mortgage debt. So it was really the kind of the same situation. You had, you had a catalyst in, in that event, which I remember very clearly in May of 2005, which was that GM bonds were uh, downgraded below investment grade, which anybody on any credit desk in the world knew was going to happen. But it caused some nervousness in those particular markets, and it it caused some people to want to take some risk out of their levered investments in in these pools of of corporate credits. But again, when levered investments start to delever, lenders get nervous, borrowers get nervous, and you end up with much greater losses than what one might expect just given the underlying economics of, uh, of the situation. Uh, there's one other thing that I would point out, which is, I think, relevant to both cases, which is in most tradable markets, and I deal a lot in the tradable markets, one of the key features is that there are natural long holders uh, of the assets, and then there are natural short sellers. The U.S. equity market is, is, is a particularly good example of that. When you're talking about structured finance of corporate credit or of mortgage portfolios, there's really nobody who's naturally short that. So when you do have people wanting to sell at the same time, there's no natural pool of buyers, and this tends to create a worse problem than, again, the underlying economics would, would justify. Well, where do you see things today? I mean, we see the central bank intervening and... Well, I uh, was on record at uh, when, when the central bank did come in and first, uh, first cut the discount rate and then the Fed funds rate uh, by 50 basis points as being somewhat surprised. Uh, it was clear, it's clear in retrospect, and as we speak um, in late November here, the markets are, are, are having a great deal of difficulty, that they did know that the problems on the investment side were much deeper than what had been disclosed. Uh, I continue to believe that the losses that have already accumulated and this is absent worse news from the underlying fundamental economic market, um, ha have not been 
fully disclosed by, by, by the people who've generated those losses. So it's created an enormous amount of uncertainty and it's not going to be a particularly comfortable investment environment until those losses are disclosed, which I think will take the, take place over several months. But my big concern, which I'm also on record as uh, expressing, is that we will make a repeat of what I believe was a mistake that took place earlier in the decade and simply flood these markets with liquidity, which will certainly solve a short-term problem. But in my opinion, we are very likely, if the Fed keeps cutting interest rates, and I, I think they'll have no choice but to do that, to find ourselves in a situation where the markets have been stable, everybody, and this is one of the main things you learn as a risk manager, everybody has very short memories about the pain that they experienced in the past, and it will again create incentives and exacerbate incentives for a poor round of investments and deal structures. So the risk of the Fed coming to the rescue here is less that they won't be successful and more that they are enabling more bad behavior on the part of investors. And at some point, the music will stop there. And that's my big concern. So if you were to prognosticate into the future, what What's your take on where we're going? Well, with my crystal clear vision of, of, of the future, I would, I would say that, uh, um, and I am on record as this, as believing that the large financial institutions who have generated these losses will not disclose them until it behooves them to disclose them. I think that it will behoove them to disclose them early in 2008 after the compensation cycles are done for 2007, after the annual reports are being written, etc. Um, I think that the problem is probably finite. You do have to remember that the whole subprime market is less than 10% of the mortgage market and it's less than 10% of the value of the U.S. equity market alone. So I've heard people, uh, very serious people, say that the entire subprime investment pool could be written down to zero and the U.S. and European financial system could easily survive it. While there is this uncertainty and some risk that the problems are deeper than anybody imagined, it's going to be a very difficult investment environment. I do expect the financial institutions of the world to continue to put pressure on the central banks to continue to cut. I do believe it will have a lagged but dramatic reflating effect on the economy and my guess is that it will be a very favorable investment environment if that happens within a couple, three quarters. My concern would be what happens two or three years down the road. Yeah, that that I, I'm not so sure about. So from a stress testing point of view in risk management, you're optimistic and you're pessimistic scenario then? Well, the, the optimistic scenario is really one, it really depends on what asset classes that you're talking about. Uh, for people who have involved themselves in levered investments and in, in credit vehicles, I think that they have, there's more pain to come. 
I think that as we have seen over the summer, uh, there will be entire investment pools, whether they be in hedge funds or other vehicles, written down to zero, be ostensibly worthless. Uh, I do think there will be a lot of large investors that that pick up a lot of assets very cheaply, um, and uh, you know, the, I don't see a real good outcome for people who are leveraged in that market at least for three or four quarters. In terms of of the other markets, um, I think that this is really boils down to nothing more than a well-deserved risk premium that has gone up on the market. So, for instance, U.S. equity markets, European equity markets, commodities markets, all of these things um, have an enormous bid on them. There's more investment capital being created every single day and only a finite pool of assets to invest in. So my guess is that uh, there is some downside risk to those markets, but there is very clearly a value bottom, particularly in commodities, which I personally believe will drive the pricing of the whole world uh, for the for the next several years, and people will come in and invest, and, and the, this market is, is very likely to, uh, to go up pretty significantly over the next several quarters once it bottoms out through the disclosure of the problems in the credit markets. Okay. So the idea of the systemic risk in structured finance, are, are you coming at that from a commodities point of view, or what are you seeing as systemic risk going forward? Well, I've got a lot of views of systemic risk. Uh, the first one, and, and the one that is probably most relevant to this particular discussion, has to do with the fact that levered, illiquid investments structured inappropriately, particularly, uh, I hate to say it, but where there's enormous incentive for the custodians of those investors to just simply grow them Mm -hmm. to the sky because they're booking such large fees. Uh, Those people have started to get their fingers burned, uh, but not nearly as bad as their investors. And this is a very old story in the world, and I think will repeat itself. And I don't particularly think that... um, we tend to learn our, our lessons very well from Dutch tulips uh, through the South Sea bubble all the way through to the Internet bubble to today. People, people are apt to buy and borrow money to buy assets uh, that are very ir- irresponsibly structured. Uh, the, this tends to be a dynamic which cycles itself out. It's finite. There are... There are things that bring things back into line, but people suffer in the meantime. I do believe more systemically, yes, that there is not enough commodity assets around, and I'm particularly things that you pull out of the ground, and not even necessarily crude oil, but things like pig iron and nickel-plated steel um, that the whole world needs and, and are in fixed supply that there's just simply not enough of and that there will be a round of commodity inflation that is 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 pretty pretty secular in nature and we're in the early days of it right now and that could lead to an overinflation of asset values which again if you start to bring in things like borrowing into the mix could create a very serious problem down the road okay well ken thank you very much for these uh, insights on systemic risk and structured finance. We appreciate your 
uh, your insights, and uh, thank you for joining us for another in our Take 15 series on market and credit risk. Copyright 2007, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.